Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve podcast. Now, today's episode, I need to make a quick disclaimer uh, for anyone that's listening who I've never had to do this before. So, it's good. what I will say is there might be topics, there will be topics that we're going to be talking about today that will trigger some people that will be um, quite heavy topics, quite serious topics. Um, and because of that, you know, if if there if you have gone through this yourself and you're not comfortable with that, then maybe you might want to skip this one. Um, but you know, yeah, just take care of yourself and uh, yeah. But here's your warning. <laughs> okay, all right. So today's guest is writer and public speaker from the Philippines, Grace Katan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Right, good. So good. How are you doing? Great. No, it's it's good to um to have you on the show. I'm I'm doing well. Um, I've had a very busy day, but I was looking forward to this because I see this as like a real challenge. Like I've I've covered some pretty heavy topics on the show before, but this is like a whole show about something. And I had to really sit down and think about it. Like when you reached out, I was like, "Can I do this? Is this something that I could do?" Because the whole point of my show. And I, I only discovered this in the last year and a half, but it's to share stories. It's to hopefully spread like a feel good thing or, you know, to share conversations, life lessons, whatever that people need to hear. That's kind of like my goal with the show. And, you know, I think that with someone such as yourself, that's doing such amazing work uh, and coming from a place of, you know, like you, you had a personal experience, something that happened to you and then you decided to build a career around helping people and spreading awareness and i think that that takes a certain a lot of like strength i think it's um it's not easy for anyone to talk about these things in general but to to come from that place and then to build onwards and then make a career out of it and help others and and turn a difficult thing into maybe something positive is is incredible and um so when i look at it like that i'm like of course i want to have you on the show do you know what i mean it's like a no-brainer to me um so let's let's kind of start there because i want i want to start at what happens happens and then talk us through your thought process for i'm going to start talking about this and making this a career and helping people. Right. I think it, I, I always say like this, this started before, before anything public, like before I published my first article, like I was just in my, in my like everyday life talking to people around me and people would ask me questions or I would know that somebody has experienced um, some form of sexual violence and, like I just knew that that I I had some sort of capacity to be there for them or talk them through it or just like be supportive and believe them. And I like academically have always been like a writing person and I also just write like I journal a lot. I write just to get my thoughts down and figure out what I'm thinking. Um and then I think that's that's what happened with with my first article was I just I had this um, it's I had this thought that like I could not shake of like 
a lot of people were asking questions that made sense and, and that were helpful and that were focused on like, how do I be like a better ally to survivors or how do I be like more supportive to my friend? But there were also a lot of people that were asking me questions that didn't make a lot of sense and that were more like, I think the title of, of that first article was something something like um, sur- supporting survivors like muse empathy over curiosity. And it was that like almost selfish curiosity that I, I needed to figure out how to describe. And so I wrote it all down. Um, and then I got in touch with the, some like people at the Yellow Progressive. And that was my first article. And I just sort of kept going from there. Um, because like all of this just started in like my private daily life even like speaking like I would be in um I'm a part of She is the Universe and before I was a community organizer with them I was just one of like the girls that came to their events and I would talk and they'd be like oh my gosh like people should be hearing this and so they gave me my first like speaking engagement and I figured out I love it and so I I don't really look at it as like making a career out of it as much as just like I do these things and if more people want to hear it or if more people will be helped and impacted by it like I I'm like willing to do the work to to get it out there when you've done the public speaking engagements have you had any particular experiences that stand out because i imagine that people must kind of come up to you a lot of the time and be like hey this really helped me etc etc is anything that stands out any particular moments where you were like wow you know this is really helping people yeah i think probably um my favorite one this is more um on the side of so i do um i talk about survivors of sexual violence but I also talked about a couple other things um this one was specifically about neurodivergence and I'm neurodivergent and it's this really like it's an experience we don't see talked about a lot and so I spoke about it um and afterwards somebody came up to me and she actually helped me work on the on the piece that I that I did and it was sort of partially spoken word. And it I was just really, really passionate about this, this piece. And she came up to me and she was like, I like she just was like, thank you. Like, I feel like I understand my son more now. And you reminded me like how how I should be loving him and how I should be expressing how much I love him. Because I was talking about like how this difference of like we have a lot I, I mean more not enough but we have more now um sort of role models for like body positivity and I've benefited from that a lot I feel like I've been taught how to love my body and I don't feel like I have that as much for my brain and for the way that my brain works as a neurodivergent person and so part, like half this piece was about like learning to love my brain the way I love my body. And I don't know, hearing her talk about like how, how this has shifted her perspective about like her family, it like made all, all of it is like so, so worth it. And it, 
it's it's the type of thing that that like I I want to be happening and the type of impact that I want to be making. Absolutely. Um, so I know that there are people that follow me that have uh, neuro neurodivergence. I believe is the term. Yeah. Uh, so talk us through the condition and you know how it's affected your life. Right. So uh, neurodivergence is actually more of like an umbrella term. So there's like a lot of different like diagnoses and things that um, will fall under that. And it's more sort of like, I believe it, it's, it's more like a social term than like a medical term. But essentially, being neurodivergent just means like, in one way or another, like my brain doesn't work the same way that other people do. And there's a lot of different ways to be neurodivergent. Um, but for me, it's, it's little things like, like I, instead of, I, I never fold my clothes, like ever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, yeah. A year ago, I just stopped doing it because it, my, the way that my brain works, like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to be doing it because it takes for me like a lot of mental energy to, to do that, that specific act of just folding clothes. And it doesn't, <laughs> and when I'm, when I'm getting dressed in the morning, like it doesn't matter to me whether I'm pulling out folded clothes or unfolded clothes. I'm like rummaging through this drawer. Right, yeah, yeah. And so just cutting that out of my life has <laughs> made just the biggest difference. But if I wasn't in a place that was so accepting of that, and I'm, I feel like I'm in such, in, I'm, it's not perfect. I don't think anywhere is perfect at this yet, but it's like relatively inclusive of neurodivergent people. Because I'm in that environment, I'm able to do this, and I'm, I don't feel like shamed for it. Or like in like back home, where I, it just was a very different environment. And okay. so like, and a lot of other places too, where when we don't have as much education about like neurodivergence and like, what, what does that look like? And what might help a neurodivergent person that is different to a neurotypical person. It's, it's just the, the biggest difference is just acceptance and understanding that like, it's okay if I want to sit on the floor instead of on this chair. Like, nobody is getting hurt by that. And the only time that... I think that's why I, I love the shift so much to, like, acceptance rather than, like, there's a lot of things that, like, we've stopped or we should be stopping trying to cure because it's just a different way for a person's brain to work, and it's not bad. It's the bad part, the part where it gets harmful is when we don't accept it and we don't make accommodations and we don't understand that person. So it's a lot of the writing and speaking thing also helps just in my daily life to communicate like, this is what I need and this is like the way I am and this is not going to be harmful. It's just something that we need to understand. Something you spoke about there is something I resonate with, this idea that like, it does. It's not hurting anyone. My behavior, this thing that I'm doing, this way that I think, whatever, it's not hurting anyone. And this is, you know, funnily enough, I was saying this in a live stream the other day that like that's how I review a lot of things. Like take uh, gender pronouns as an example. Like when someone says, "Hey, can you call me by these pronouns?" I'm like, "Okay," 
and that's it because it, it doesn't affect it. i mean it's a bit of a you know it gets confusing sometimes i bet that but like it's it's just like it's not hurting anyone so just just you know you know what i mean but I, I know that there's people that get really annoyed about it and really take issue with it so bringing it back to neurodivergence that like why do you think that the people kind of sometimes take exception with it or don't accept it like why do you think that is I mean, the biggest thing is probably just, like, lack of understanding. Again, like, we don't talk about it as much. A lot of people have never even heard the word neurodivergent. And so it's, one is lack of understanding, and then the second one is probably just difference. Like, we, we like, we feel, like, really safe and comfortable and good when we're similar to the people that that are around us and so it can be a little bit like jarring or confusing for some neurotypical people to see like just different behavior that isn't again is like not harmful at all it's just like helpful to me so like if we're all if we're all like sitting in a classroom and I have like a sensory tool out that is helping me focus. Like it's in in another environment that behavior might have been shut down. Like I I love that here where I am, like my professors are really accepting. It just took like one sentence of like, hey, just to let you know, like I'm neurodivergent. This helps me focus. The less focused I look, the more focused I am. <laughs> like that and that's all it took and they understood that and so it's really about just just taking the time to to understand it and it also comes down to believing people again like i talk a lot about trusting ourselves and trusting each other and like believing me <laughs> when i say that like if I'm looking off into the distance, that means I'm listening to your message. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, I'm listening. Of course. I promise. Yeah, I'm absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, a lot, it's a lot about trusting and believing each other because when you don't understand something or I don't understand, I like, have never experienced what's going on in your head, I have no way of knowing like, what is what that feels like. And so the only way I can understand is for you to tell me and for me to believe that. Like that's the second step that we sometimes will forget is just believing each other. Mm. I feel like a lot of it comes down to like, as you say, patience, communication, just kind of trying to help someone understand like, hey, when you exhibit this behavior, it gives off this impression. Is that the case? And then you ask the person and then they tell you how they feel about the thing. Cause that's another thing as well. Like what you commented on before about the difference between an, a neurodivergent person and a neurotypical person is that you can't sort of approach that person in the same manner. Like, you know, you have to kind of take into account like, okay, maybe the way they've interpreted what I've just said or done is different. You know, you have to be more conscientious of that, um, which kind of, begs for the question actually like what do you think is the best way to approach that like if, if you meet someone that has neurodivergence um and and you are nor you're neurotypical like how how do you approach that um i think so two things again the first one is i 
I'm like a prepper. Like I like to be prepared <laughs> for anything that comes my way. And that includes like meeting people who I don't understand. And so like the way that mm. I, I make sure that I'm, I'm going to be like the best person that I can be is like looking, looking things up adding adding neuro like following neurodivergent creators like adding them to my social media feed so i am regularly like hearing their voices learning more about their experiences and just like i i can't think of a better a better word than like getting used to it no, <laughs> i don't know like, fair enough yeah. getting more like just being used to being around people that are different from you and the more like it just takes just building those relationships and listening to those voices. And then when you actually meet that person or you meet um, a neurodivergent person, just one, like, listen to whatever it is they're actually saying. Like, a lot of us, obviously, it's nothing I say applies to every neurodivergent person, but, like, a lot of us are pretty, like, communicative about, like, I will just tell people, like, I don't get most social cues. Like it just isn't going to happen. So if you need me to, like I told I uh, this new friend that like had not known me for a while and we were like out doing something and we were standing there and he's like waiting for something to happen. And I'm like, what is going on here? And it turns out like he had a, a next thing to get to. So he was waiting for me to leave. But he had like dropped all of these like hints and like social cues. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. What said, it, it's this thing of like, is there any salt versus can I have salt? <laughs> so I, I, I just told him. Oh, well, I would say I say in those scenarios, though, I, th I think if, if the person really needs you to leave, like maybe it's on them to sort of say yeah, that, like, you know. It was not like a serious thing right. at all. But I just noticed like, something's going on here that I don't understand. <laughs> so I just said straight up, like, hey, man, like, is so like, what do you need me to do right now? <laughs> what are you trying to say? He's like, I'm waiting for you to leave. <laughs> like, okay, just tell me that. I just and feel so mean to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I, <laughs> I, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, oh, all right, right on. Um, bye then. <laughs> Thanks. But that's just like I will tell people like that's just the communication style that works for me, and that's how you're gonna get something across to me is just to tell me. And so, like, obviously, not every neurodivergent person is gonna be as like just blunt and honest as as I tend to be. But like, when somebody says like that light is really bright, mm. or like the music's super, super loud. Like, j just believe them. Just be like, okay, we can, like, turn it yeah. down a little. And it it might not feel like a big deal to you, but, like, neurodivergence isn't just, like, it isn't just anything. It's a lot of things. So it encompasses things from, like, social cues to, like, sensory issues. And so it's impossible to understand what every single person needs in every scenario because we're all different and so it's just listening it's really just listening and believing people now, i get where you're coming from like I, i've heard the term sensory overload a lot and you know I, I don't think that i'm neurodivergent or whatever i think i'm neurotypical but i will say that like sometimes 
yeah, I can be. I have a tendency to be a bit of a bit of a hermit sometimes. And I don't know when. I, sometimes when I go out, like and it's a Saturday and it's there's loads of people around. And everything's kind of crazy. That feels a bit like sensory overload. It's like, wow, okay, lots going on. I need a minute to like process all of this. And sometimes it could be a bit too much, and you can feel sort of trapped. Like, so I think what you said about just trying to understand, trying to put yourself in in the shoes of another person. That's kind of the key, isn't it? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's, and I, I think that counts for anyone, not just, you know, yeah. just in general in life. You know, Absolutely. just no. yeah. A lot of a lot of the 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 fixes and the and the different like shifts in mindset that that disability justice advocates and neurodivergent advocates have been advocating for actually do work for just like society in general. So like. It, it might be a little bit more important um, for a disabled person or for a neurodivergent person to be believed when they say, like, I need this particular thing. But right. all of these skills of, like, listening and trusting people and trying to understand each other, like, they work for everybody. And a lot of the accommodations that neurodivergent and disabled people ask for or need also help everybody. Like, if if we the that's a one of the like tenets of of universal design i don't know if you've heard about it Mm. but it's um it's like this this principle that like there's ways to design things that one they make things better for disabled people they 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 just make things more accessible but they also like make life easier for non-disabled people so there's like no reason not to do it so one example is like curb cuts right that's like the most famous example where like they're created so that wheelchair users can get up and down the curb, but they also help like people with suitcases at the airport or like people rolling around their, their like, I don't know what, what the word, is. I guess it's also called a suitcase. Like if you have like a little thing for, with all your work stuff in it yeah. and you're rolling it around or people pushing things in a dolly, like it just is helpful. <laughs> It's fun. And- it's fun as well. I mean, I'm, I'm a big child, so I just like spin around on it until I don't care. <laughs> I'll do that all day long. <laughs> and or like my school has, and a lot of places have um, the like accessibility buttons that will make it easier. Will that will have an automatic door so that wheelchair users and people with other types of disabilities can get into a door like more easily. But it also helps when you're like carrying a bunch of books. Or you have like a cup in this hand and your laptop in this hand and you're like trying to, but you can just use the button and it's easier. And obviously it's, it's not feasible to have like a button at every single door, but a lot of these fixes when applied large scale are, are helpful for everybody. So that's, that's sort of the, the idea of, of like, access for disabled people and for neurodivergent people is a lot of the time access for everybody. Sure. Uh, what advice could you give to people who might have just discovered that they are neurodivergent? Um, I think the thing that helped me most was probably finding other neurodivergent people, whether it's like in your life or for me a lot of it was online at first just like finding like neurodivergent creators and listening to like what they're saying and reading op-eds and things like that because a lot of the the hard part of of my journey was just like self-acceptance and just being kind to myself and understanding that like oh my gosh 
all of these things that like as a kid like I was told to not do or I was criticized for like they're just like normal parts of, of who I am and they're okay and I like should get to be kind to those parts of myself and the way that I learned to do that was just watching other people be kind to those parts of themselves and so just hearing like listening to other people's experiences of like this is how I or like I got the the stop folding your clothes idea from somebody else <laughs> and so that not every remember that not everything that works for somebody else even if you have exactly the same condition like it's not going to all work for you, but getting ideas from each other and feeling that sense of community and belonging and acceptance goes a really, really long way. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing. Uh, let's take it back to um, sort of our main topic today. Um, what advice could you give to people who are discussing, you know, their experiences for the first time? So they've experienced... You know, I had to think about this as well, like how to say this. I guess I'll just say sexual assault. I'll say it. I'll just say it. Um, how how can one approach this? How did you first approach it? Honestly, it was a years long process. Like there was not one day where I was like, today I'm telling my mom. Like, right. I get I, you. Yeah. It like I halfway told my best friend and then I halfway told another friend and then I kind of told my parents and then I told my parents again and it it looks different for everybody but the most important thing is is getting the support and oftentimes the resources that you need whether it's like financial like the um i just want to plug like free from is a great organization that that does a lot of financial support and both in terms of like learning um financial skills to become more financially independent and also things like grants and like economic help um to help survivors like get back on their feet if financials was a part of of this experience that was impacted um other times it's like mental health resources and things like counseling because this is like a major a major life event and and regardless of how big or small it feels like you deserve to have that support if you feel like that's what you need um in terms of approaching that conversation because that was like the hardest hardest part for me was just like i don't have the words for this like i don't know how to say this mm. um that was the reason I created the Tussle One Project. It's a, so it's a resource that's available online. You can just Google like the Tussle One Project um, and you can print it out. There's digital versions. There's all types of different ways that you can use it, but it essentially will start that conversation for you and you just hand it to someone or you send it to them and it will start off with just like, hey, like this is the conversation we're having right now. This something has happened to this person and they are trusting you now to support them um and then it also has things like guidelines of like what to say and what not to say how to be supportive and then it'll get into like you can you can customize it but you get to choose like questions that the other person can ask you because it's it's hard to to start 
and be like, hey, this is the story. Like, it that just did not work for me. <laughs> right, but what yeah, worked yeah. for me was when other people ask me questions mm. and I could answer them. And the questions are formulated in, in a way that isn't it to give you as much choice as possible. So it's rather than like what happened, it's, it's phrased more in a way that's like, is there anything that you want to share about what happened? Or like is, and then it's divided into sort of like, you want to talk about what happened? Do you want to talk about how it's affecting you now? And then do you want to talk about how I can be supportive in the future? And so it's sort of setting up this conversation in like a structured way that just gives you like the, the power and the agency to decide like how this goes and share what you want to share. Would you say a part of it as well is the fact that the other person is leading the conversation? So instead of you coming into it and having to be like, oh, right, where do I start? Like they're guiding it by asking those questions. And then, as you say, you take ownership of the answers and such, but like they're still leading the conversation. Right. I wouldn't say that the other person is leading the conversation. Well, I get, I guess so. Yeah, because it's, but because it's based on this like, survivor generated on these survivor generated questions um it's it's sort of like splitting the work almost where mm. instead of me being the one like i'm bringing this up and i'm worried about how do i say this and i'm also like telling my story it's sort of splitting that work so that the other person can be a little bit more like can sort of do do the the almost logistical part of the conversation and make sure we're talking but the the foundation of it is really like the survivor's agency and the survivor's ability to decide like, what they want to share because not being able to share something because i don't know how is in my opinion like as as disempowering as being forced to share something that I don't want to hmm. because I'm not able to say what I want to say so this just sort of again like splits that that burden of labor and so you're both you're both engaged in this conversation in different ways that hopefully will help you both come to some sort of understanding what would you say have been the biggest lessons and takeaways from speaking about your experiences um, biggest takeaways are probably like one that this is everywhere. Right. Yeah. I, I had seen, I knew all the statistics going into this, but just, but now like I, I can be 100% confident and walk into a room and know that somebody here has experienced this or knows somebody who has experienced this because it I just it just has never happened where I'm I'm writing something or I'm talking about something and nobody else has their own story to share every time whether it's in a public forum and somebody comes up to me at the end or sends me a message or it's just like I'm with my friends and and we're talking about this and it comes up somehow like when I'm talking, I'm not the only person talking. Like I will say something and somebody will say, oh, that happened to my friend. Or this one time that happened to me. And 
it's just absolutely everywhere. And, and so it's not, I think I'm a lot less like apologetic or embarrassed now about like talking about this too much because I know that like there, there are a lot, a lot of, of people who have experienced this and seeing like a post on your or like a story on your feed that's just like supportive of survivors like those little silent interactions that you can't really see like now that I know that they're there it I'm just I'm just not not embarrassed about it anymore I'm not apologetic at all because I know there's people that need and, and are waiting to hear this stuff Talk us through you know, your work with social media and content creation and how it's helped sort of spread the message about what you do and spread awareness and stuff like that. I kind of want to come at this from two angles. So firstly, just generally how you market yourself, but also how it's actually helped you to get the message up. Yeah, I think I, when I first start, like when I posted like my first couple of videos um, and like, I do these little bite-sized things on Instagram because that's just like how my brain works. Um, I was really worried about like when you think about impact on social media, it's a lot of the time it's numbers based and it's like, how many followers do you have and how many people are seeing this video? And that's absolutely important. Like that matters. But I had this like mindset shift part of the way through where I was getting ice cream. I was just out like in my town and somebody from my school who I didn't know well, but had met a couple times came up to me and was like, Hey, I really appreciate the stuff you post on, on social media. And I was like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> because like, when you think about, impact i feel like there's a tendency to think that like oh it's more impactful if like the compliment is coming from a stranger or something like that but a lot of the time it's the people in our own lives that need to hear this and or need to know that somebody is here near them on their side and like the impact that i've i've seen it's it's really difficult to measure but you can see it and you can feel it when people are more comfortable coming to you with questions or are more or will just open up to you and and say like hey like this has been helpful because it's not always about like what that it's important to like if you're going to if you're touching the life of a stranger across the globe but it's just as important to see like the person in your class now feels more comfortable like openly like being who they are showing a certain part of themselves because they know that you're there and you're open and actively in support of who they are and in support of of them as people and are not gonna gonna victim blame them or shame anything like that. thanks for sharing um so you delivered a speech entitled don't pull my ponytail which is about teaching kids why consent is important so talk us through this speech and why you know it's important to teach this to kids and 
you know, the suggestions that you've made for how to approach it? Um, so the, I, <laughs> that was a while ago. So I just am like laughing. I just like love the title. I don't know how I came up with that, but it it's so like we know now like consent is about more than just like the sexual or the romantic like aspect of our lives like consent is everywhere from like sure. the release form that you sign to let your kid go on go on a field trip mm-hmm. to like any business contract so but the the important part that we don't necessarily teach kids and sometimes we teach kids the opposite is like about like bodily autonomy and knowing that like the the concept of like my body my rules is Mm. is a really easy way to convey that to kids because it in addition to just like this sets them up for a much like healthier and and safer and more respectful like dating life in the future it also is protecting them in their current lives because a kid who knows how to say no when when there's something they're not comfortable with is so so powerful because it's not teaching kids about consent and teaching them about bodily autonomy and body ownership is it's not about like I don't want to go to bed at this time it's about like if I I know that like a hug would make me feel really uncomfortable right now I should not have to go through that like and and I should know that I can say no to that. and so part of it and then that like creates this this sort of culture of consent is I think what some people call it where you just you just know that that people people can decide what is okay and what is not okay for them and it seeps into things like when i'm watching a movie with my friend and i want to put my head on her shoulder i'll say is this okay and that like it's it's a really like small thing but it makes everybody feel so much more safe and comfortable and respected and loved and sometimes it is okay and she's like yeah and sometimes she's like, I am in a weird mood today and I don't really want to be touched at all. And it's like, okay, like, thank you for telling me that because I don't want, it's a lot more important to to me at least and hopefully to other people to strengthen those relationships and keep that communication open and make each other feel safe than it is for me to have this particular physical contact at this particular time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's um, it's, it's a tough one to approach, really, isn't it? But I think the way that you've broken it down there kind of makes it pretty straightforward. You know, it is just about saying like, "Hey, listen, this doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you happy." One thing I wanted to add to that as well, I think, is for, in a child's mind, you know, you you look at like adults as uh, particularly you place your trust in them, you know, and obviously. You know, I won't say it, but horrible things can happen sometimes. And it's I think it's good to know that even when that comes from adults, like sometimes it's, you know, if if you're being asked something that falls outside of what is acceptable or normal or, you know, something that makes you uncomfortable, you can say that. And you can even say that to an adult. And then 
they're in you know protect yourself kind of thing and and as you say it sets a, a kid up well for life i mean gosh i can think of so many times in life where i felt pressure to do something maybe at work that isn't in my contract it's not there it doesn't say that i have to do that but you know you feel that pressure and obviously it takes a lot of guts to like stand up and say no i'm not going to do that and you know you risk potentially getting fired or whatever but like <laughs> You got to be able to say no. Like you can't, you can't yeah. be forced into these things unless unless you sign a contract which literally says I have to do this particular thing at work or whatever. Like there's no reason to say you. And, and even then, even then, I think even you, then you even should then not you, be pressured to sign that contract if you well, don't want to. But here's the thing: even even if you've like signed a contract and you change your mind and you don't want to now do that thing that's why breach of contract exists that's why we you know what I mean there'll be consequences but right. at least you're able to do that at least you're able to take it back whatever change things etc um and that's probably why the terminology is written in such a way in legal culture now like consent form like it's I get it a lot um in the acting sphere you know like um a lot of the time it'll be just like forms saying that I consent to my stuff being used in a particular sphere but it's important in that sphere because maybe i don't want this material used maybe i changed my mind maybe i it no longer fits my brand or i'm you know i no longer want it to be out there or for whatever reason like i have some control over it it's, it's i'm not powerless which i guess is the whole point yeah. how best can we support a friend or family member that has suffered sexual assault um, I think the first thing I want to say is is do a whole bunch of research outside of listening to this one minute spiel <laughs> that I'm about to get. There's there's so much out there, and if you literally just Google that question, you will get a lot of like helpful information. Um, the biggest sort of overarching thing to keep in mind is I think we personally all have a lot of like biases that we've been taught that that will that will tell us to to try and figure out what happened figure out how this happened because part of it is is like we want to make sure we're we're safe and this isn't going to happen to me but, but the reality is that's not how it works at all and there's not really it, it's it's never within the survivor's control, and so the the classic the classic question that we always tell people not to ask is like what were you wearing or like what were you doing were you drinking? Mm. But the the idea of not victim blaming goes so much far, like there's a lot a lot more subtle stuff like who were you with? Like, did you, did you call, did you call a friend or what did you say? Did you, did you tell them that you didn't want to do that? And all, there's so many questions that we should be asking things like, how, how can I help? <laughs> or like, how are you feeling? Is there anything that's really hard right now that I can help with? Like mm. really simple things as well. Um, 
go a long way. Like when, especially right after something like this happens, it can be really difficult to, to just keep up with, with normal daily life in addition to dealing with this. So things like walking them to a doctor's appointment or, or like <laughs> the stereotype is bringing over a casserole. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works, man. I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Well, what you, what you were saying there is like, especially after an incident, and the first thing that came to my mind is like, I imagine for many people, when you go through something like that, you're sort of in a state of shock. You know, like maybe you know you go back and forth. Like it's it's probably difficult to sit and think like, oh, I guess I need to go to my job now, or I need to get up and make myself food, or whatever. Because it's you're like you can't believe this thing has happened and you're still processing it. And that can, that can take forever. And, you know, a lot of it does come down to the type of person you are and such, but at the end of the day, even then it's, you know what I mean? It's a whole process that takes time. And I think if, if someone can come in and and sort of see like, Oh, maybe there's something I can do. It's not directly going to help. It's not going to, um, change things you know whatever but it maybe it helps to kind of create some normality and by doing so creating that normality and routine and so on you can kind of begin to help a person kind of get back in the mindset of feeling normal again and then that's when you start making that progress maybe yeah and and it doesn't always even have to be doing something because that is like it it is a common response to be sort of in shock and it like is totally normal if like mm. you don't feel like going to work the next day but some people also have the opposite response and they're yeah. like it's also really common to be in denial or to not realize what has happened until some people even will realize it like years later and that might also be a time that, that where they need that that kind of support but like as somebody supporting a survivor um because i've been on both ends of this right so like something that i had to remind myself is like i do not have the responsibility or the ability to fix this for that like i i can't solve this this isn't something that i can just fix but i can be there for the person so for some people it's helpful to like my friend once helped me carry my laundry downstairs because mm. it was really heavy and that was really <laughs> difficult for me and i'm so grateful for her and that just was i just i needed clean clothes but sometimes it's more like a text that just says hey like i know like if the person does not want practical help right now like i don't think it's it's always helpful to force them to accept it Mm. i once there was this person that just like wanted to be alone and that's okay and so i just like texted her like hey like if you want company like i am here i'm free this afternoon if you don't that's okay but i'm here for you i'm like i believe you and you like should not have gone through this and sometimes that's all it takes. And just like receiving, having received messages like that was how I knew that this could be helpful. 
And so everybody needs something a little bit different, but it's all again without listening. And the concept of empowerment and choice is is so central, especially here, because the whole idea of sexual violence is that the choice was taken away from that person. Their ability to choose what happens to them was stolen in that moment. And so giving them as much agency and choice as possible, even if the choice is, I don't want to make a decision, please decide for me. That's still a choice that they deserve to make. And so keeping listening and choice in mind throughout all of this is the most helpful thing you can do. One of the questions I have here uh, revolves around numbers. Um, so I want to, and you mentioned earlier that you sort of looked into the statistics. So I suppose I got two questions. Firstly, do the statistics suggest it's on the rise? You know, so sexual assault crimes, are they on the rise? And if so, why do you think that is? Um, honestly, I could not tell you. I, I don't know um, the concrete numbers like year to year of mm. how they're changing. What I do know is um, like domestic violence and sexual violence within the home went up a lot during the pandemic. Yeah. And that's something that the organizations are still working to to deal with and to support people who have who have experienced that. That's why the pandemic was so and like specifically in places with lockdowns, like it was really, really bad for a lot of people who have experienced domestic abuse or who are still experiencing domestic abuse. And now that lockdowns are sort of shifting and, and a lot of places are opening up, I don't know how that's going to impact things. Um, but there also are a lot of a lot of shifts in terms of college campuses that because I know uh, one specific organization, Green Dot, is working on a lot of college campuses and they were making a lot of progress before the pandemic in sort of shifting this culture, at least in the in the at the universities where they were. Um, but the pandemic ultimately sort of put a stop to that. And so like the problem that that I've been hearing them talk about is like, okay, we made all this progress. We had like this whole class of people that were educated about this and that were really respectful of each other. And then we had the pandemic and they all graduated. And now what do we do? Like we're starting from scratch. And so hopefully it, it, it will come back down and we'll keep making progress and doing the work that we're doing. I just don't know exactly where we're at right now because it's sort of still like a transition phase. Do you have maybe some general ideas, let's say for society in general, to approach this? Maybe there's things we could be doing that might either help to prevent this or help to curb it or spread awareness or anything in between? Like, Is there anything we could change maybe that's blaringly obvious that we're not doing right now? Um, blaringly obvious. <laughs> um, we, one could be believing survivors more. Like I know we right. say that so much and we've been like trying to drill it into people's heads, but like even... I'm not even talking like officially. I'm just talking about like 
when your friend tells you that something has happened to them, don't question that. Like, you wouldn't question if they told you they got mugged. Like, it's just not, it's not, I don't know, it's not happening yet. Mm. Um, And it's happening more now that we have more awareness about it. But that is one, like, glaringly obvious to me. And then another one is just, like, our our systems of accountability are just terrible right now. And so, like, one thing that I've heard somebody say that really resonated with me was, like, there's communities now and, and in my community, like, a lot of support for survivors, but not a lot of accountability for perpetrators. And so I'm, an article is about to go out actually in the next one or two weeks that is about to, that is about like social accountability for perpetrators. And like the, the blaringly obvious here is just don't be friends with people who've committed sexual violence. Like it sounds so like, I don't know, like it sounds weird to say it out to that like I have to tell people this <laughs> but it's just I it's different in different parts of the world I know but there's a lot of people that are willing still willing to look look past it or to I don't know just just act like this this hasn't happened or like the biggest excuse is like this person has changed but that's not always what it's about sometimes it's about like are they currently like a perpetrator of sexual violence and still doing this but a lot of the time it's about respect for their victims like i i'm i'm writing another piece right now with with a line in it that i love it's just like it's you like you're really like a lot of people are really concerned about justice and and like fairness and so they'll say like it's unfair to take away this this person's whole career for one thing they did but it's also really really unfair for victims to see their 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 abuser just in a position of power like how big a slap in the face is that so that's that's the a big big one is just holding perpetrators accountable and not not moving past this like it's it's some some little crime or like a little little mistake because it it can change somebody's whole life and so it needs to be treated as a problem that is that big thank you very much for sharing couple of final questions for you, not related to our topic today, just general questions that I ask every guest that appears on the show. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, trust yourself. Yeah. Just believe yourself. Not, not, not even believe in yourself, but just like believe the things that your body and your mind are telling you because they're you don't just make stuff up (laughs) and what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far Um, 
biggest life lesson? Wow. Probably, like, you never know, like, why people are doing something. A lot of, a lot of the, the things, like, I've, I've seen a lot of people, I've had a lot of conversations that are, like, hey, like, that was a kind of a really terrible thing to do. Like, why did you do that? And they'll open up with this, like, story that I just could never have imagined. And so there, there's a lot of, a lot of compassion and understanding and, like, I don't know, just knowing we don't. And I, like, am terrible at, at this. Like, I, <laughs> I'm terrible at, like, imagining that people have some reason I don't understand for doing things but it's it's just practice I don't know like I'm not the greatest at it but I am practicing doing your best <laughs> as we uh, draw things to a close today is there any upcoming projects or maybe some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners um I, I don't think I have any projects that I'm allowed to announce. Fair enough. But, um, I think a final thought would just be like, I, I know I've, I've said believe yourself and believe each other like 20 times in this thing, but one thing that I think we don't fully, like we don't have much practice doing is believing people's feelings and valuing that because we do a lot of of comparing of like this is like just a feeling versus this is a fact and this is reality but a lot of the time like i am sad is a fact like it's not yes it's not the same as like this rock is three inches long <laughs> but it's it's still important if we care about human beings like listening to their feelings is important and not just listening but like valuing them and understanding like this impacts this person's experience and so i care about that regardless of this goes back to what i was talking about earlier with like cutting perpetrators like out of your life and just not being friends with them especially if you're friends with with survivors or even their victims because the the fact might be like oh the perpetrator has learned from their mistakes and has has changed and grown as a person okay maybe that's the fact but the a, another fact that exists alongside of that is seeing i'll t I'll, I'll just use myself as an example like seeing my best friend go and just have lunch with a person that has harassed me like so many people <laughs> like that is hurtful and that makes me angry and disrespected and this fact was there i don't think i don't think that person is going to harass people again like he learned sufficiently but that doesn't mean that my friend can now just like forget about it and go have lunch with me. 
And it was the most, it was the best feeling, I think, when I, I told her that and I communicated that and she was like, okay, like she just said yes, like it wasn't a big deal because it shouldn't, like it should be almost a given. And that, that has maybe made me a little bit less tolerant of people that won't do that because I know it is possible and for some people it is just that easy and but it it really was like I I couldn't describe it to you how that felt to see that happen I think maybe for the first time where someone was just like I understand okay yes like I'm I will keep my distance and just it's just a respect thing almost so yeah like valuing people's feelings alongside like the facts of the world because sometimes like the existence of humans means like feelings are part of are part of the facts that we can describe brilliant thank you very much for sharing and uh, for appearing on the show it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and i hope you've enjoyed being on the show too thank you so much for having me and uh, to the listeners of the Christian Reed podcast, as always, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.